This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk novel set in Boston in the 22nd century. It's written by Chang Terhune and read by Chang Terhune. So come with me and let's step into the world of Tribal Malfunctions. Welcome to another episode of Tribal Malfunctions, the podcast of me, Chang Terhune, reading my cyberpunk novel, Tribal Malfunctions, to you, the listener. And I hope it's a great day for you and you're having a good time. I really hope you're enjoying listening to this. I really love uh, doing this. It's just so much fun uh, for me to bring this out to you. So I hope... um, I hope you're digging it, you know, the two or three of you who are listening. Uh, Yeah, and so we're up to chapter five, and things are kicking along. There's a lot of uh, crazy stuff happening in the world of Boston in the 21st century. Uh, So this is chapter five, so you got four to catch up on if you're uh, just joining us. So um, without further ado, I'm going to give you a few, uh, a little time to catch up and uh, okay, have at it. Okay, uh, I think you're all set. So let's begin. As usual, a little... um a little forewarning, there's cussing in this podcast, and uh, that makes it even better. So don't play it around children or squeamish adults. So let's get started. Episode 5, Chapter 5 of Tribal Malfunctions. Her eyes are lowered to the floor before her, 
as if staring at the tips of her immaculate shoes. She stands still for over a minute as the camera slowly zooms in towards her. Finally, she lifts her head and looks into the lens, piercing blue eyes lingering as her mouth forms a terse and pained smile. The word Anna appears in front of her in yellow script, then fades away. This is the opening sequence of the most popular broadcast program in human history. Anna has been running continuously with new episodes each week for the past seven years. Viewership has steadily grown since the show first opened to minimal fanfare on the OGN network to now being watched by over 4 billion people tuning in weekly via the web or TV to watch the mysterious events of the little girl and the obscure world she lives in. Accepted from Tube 100 Years, a history of the most popular TV programs of the past two centuries. Published 2115 Corwin Press, New Milford, Connecticut. Chapter 5, House, Not a Home. R.S. easily escaped the garage by beginning a campaign for eating lunch at the paddock just after breakfast and not letting up despite Manea's persistent disgust at his longing descriptions of their food. Come on, he said around 11.30 a.m., launching his final attack. Maybe the food's better since last time you ate there. Oh, R.S., she said, slapping a pen down on the desk. Have you seen that place? The grease fence on the outside have crap caked on there from 2080. My grandfather used to talk about his father eating there once and never going back. That was in like 1999 or something, he said to her laughing. Of course it had. No, she said, in what he knew was her final tone. I'm not eating there. You want to? Be my guest. But don't you dare wake me up tonight if you get sick. Not going to get sick, babe, he said. Better not, she muttered. At 12.30, after she went to a Cuban-Chinese deli up the street, Aris left for the paddock. Approaching it, he grimaced at tattered maroon awnings over the windows sporting the ancient equestrian theme of a white horse in silhouette. This was in an area of a city that hadn't seen a horse in well over 200 years. He stepped into the foyer where an antique cigarette machine that now dispensed candy sat, Paddock was a marvel in some ways, an eatery that had seen little change over almost a century and a half. He walked through the curtain into the dining area, cheap wood paneling matched by ancient and cracked naugahyde upholstery on the chairs and banquettes. In an age where nothing had to look worn or seedy, with nannies that could repair anything constantly and instantaneously, the Paddock's owners kept the place in an almost defiant state of shabby disrepair. The Please Seat Yourself sign bore some minor encrustations from ages past. He strode back into the depths of the restaurant beneath old wagon wheel chandeliers, passing a few diners, mostly cabbies and some civilians. In back was a private dining room he'd reserved that morning. Aris wasn't sure if it was ever used by anyone, but they'd cleaned it up for him, supplying fresh table linens and a couple of pitchers of ice water. He ignored these for a hot coffee decanter on a side table, filling a cup before sitting at a banquette along the rear wall. He sipped the hot coffee 
and picked at some bread laid out in a basket on the table. Around 1 p.m., the heavy boys showed up. He heard a minor commotion at the door, which was typical for the entry of a pair of heavy boys into any establishment. They were not known for respectable public behavior or kindness to furniture. The cabbies would be scowling at them, angered at the possible interruption of their luncheon. A moment later, the heavy boys stepped through the curtain and stood at the threshold. Hey, said Aris, have a seat. The boys paused like vampires, awaiting an invitation, then came to sit opposite him in the creaking wooden chairs. An ageless and craggy waitress in a white and pink uniform came in, her skin as pale as her starched white blouse and skirt. Her hair was dyed a flat black, usually reserved for chemical plants and municipal vehicles. She looked at Aris, then at the bulky black figure seated before him. The heavy boys didn't turn to look at her. A couple of lunch platters, Marnie, said Aris. That'll do. Okay, Mr. A, the woman said in her nicotine-creased voice. She left, and they stared at each other for a minute. You gonna talk, or do we have to replay last night, said Aris. Maybe you hand over the other half of them cards, and... Aris cut them off with a shake of his head. First, I'm feeding you both, he said. Nine knives... You clearly like to eat, but Tai-Tai here looks like he's missed a few meals. Nine Knives smirked. Aris knew he'd gained respect by addressing the bigger of the two first while knocking the little one down slightly. Don't need to eat much, Tai-Tai said. Huh, grunted Nine Knives, lowering his gaze so Aris could see rolling eyes behind his shades. Between that Madali girl of yours and your gear fetish, you can't fucking afford to eat, Aris laughed. Tai-Tai shrunk into his coat. Secondly, Aris said, you tell me some things, then I'll see if I remembered those cards. You get the video I sent, said Nine Knives. Aris nodded. That ain't enough? Aris shrugged. Why don't you tell me what I was seeing? Nine Knives grabbed some bread and stuffed it into his mouth. Tai-Tai grabbed half a loaf and gnawed at it like a prisoner. When the fat one was done, he leaned back into the complaining chair. Okay, so it's like 2 or 3 a.m., and we're holding down, making our presence known, you know? Aris imagined them standing on the cold, empty platform, then suddenly realized why they were always there. From the platform's public outlet, they could steal cheap electricity, courtesy of the Massachusetts Oceanic Hydroelectric Beds that lined the coast. He used to do the same thing made it look like he was holding down turf while charging the suit's greedy battery packs. Then we see a cab pull up alongside your place. Aris remembered the footage on his tablet during his morning commute. A nondescript sedan with rental plates. Three men stepping out. These guys get out. They look big, but not exactly down and heavy, right? Tai-Tai nodded and reached for more bread, crumbs tumbling down the shining surface of his coat. Seen them standing around just uh, out of the street late, clearly casing the place, looking up and down the street, checking the one-ski cams out. They kick some shit at the fence, saw a couple of spacks, then they opened the trunk. Fuckers pulled out some heavy-looking shears, but just as they were about to use them, they got spooked and took off, Tai-Tai said, around a mouthful of bread. 
Aris knew what happened next. A police cruiser rolled by, most likely with Kassal in it, patrolling the area. He was puzzled by the lack of intelligence from these thieves, whoever they were. Were they trying to drive off with the hauler like the first time, or were they simply after something inside it? That would make sense, but he wondered what might be inside. He'd check it if he could, but the hauler was long gone, having been picked up early that morning by a drone tow truck at exactly 6 a.m. Aris briefly wondered if someone was playing a game using his lot as a part of the board. Anything else? He asked the heavy voice. Nah, said Tai Tai, mouth briefly empty. Didn't come back. Must have been scared off by them cops. Or you, said Aris, playing to his ego. Nynaevs puffed up a bit, nodding. Yeah, they look kind of down and heavy, but you can't tell when they ain't suited up. But I'll fucking die before I let anyone else try to stand in my territory. The waitress arrived, pushing a tray before her. She set out five platters of food, ranging from cuts of luncheon meat, platters of ribs, sausages, noodles, then left. You think they were from NYC? asked Aris. Did they look down and heavy? Uh, like I said, they kinda did, Nine Knives replied. Well, mokes, but that could make them cops and military. But they look kinda. kinda what? asked Aris. Kinda itchy, like they'd rather be wearing a real set of cut and colors, said Tai Tai, creating a pile of food nearly as big as his head. Nine Knives scowled and slapped the towering thing, knocking it in half and stealing most of what tipped over. Tai Tai took it in stride and built himself a new mound of food. Aris knew what they meant about being uncomfortable in regular clothes. It wasn't just a fat suit, super conforming fit. The way it sensed and contoured against your body, it was a sense of pride and belonging. The suit was as much an emblem as it was a uniform. As a heavy boy, you got so used to wearing the suit, being held by it, your weight amplified or decreased in it, that wearing anything else felt conspicuous, like being naked or in high altitudes without an oxygen tank. I hear that, said Aris, looking at the worn coveralls he sported under his parka. It still feels weird sometimes. He felt embarrassed saying it aloud, but the heavy boys didn't seem to care, being too interested in their food to give him much more than a nod. They ate in silence, but Aris had lost his appetite, thinking about the hauler and its secrets. Nine Knives finished his food and threw his napkin on his plate after blowing his nose into it. The two of them had laid waste to four of the five platters set before them. So, Nine Knives said, snorting, we're going to see the other half of those cards now or what? Aris fished the cards from his pocket and tossed them at Nine Knives. The boy fumbled the catch, then clutched them after a brief tussle. Tai Tai snickered. Some guys at the old base say you used to be down and heavy to a major degree, said Nine Knives. Oh yeah? asked Aris, suddenly feeling smaller in his parka. Is that right? Yeah. Almost made top-down status. Getting set up with your own all base. Becoming an all-papa. Nearly had your own massive. I don't know about that, Aris said. Yeah, well, 15 years down the road, and you're still on the map. As a traitor and coward, huh? He spat back at them. It was Nine Knives' turn to shrug. He smiled as he spoke. Just keep up a good relationship with us, and we'll make sure folks know that you're not the shitbird they say you are. Thanks, said Aris, standing. He suddenly felt an anxious, filmy sweat creep over him, making him cold and sullen. 
Instantly, he wanted to be somewhere other than the paddock, seeing it now for the tawdry, greasy mess it was, just as Menea saw it. We done here? Tai-Tai said, standing and grabbing another sandwich. Yeah, I guess so, said Aris. Better come out with me. The staff's a little... Yeah, yeah. Save your bandwidth. We got the confirm. No one likes a heavy boy and no one wants to get us. Never have, never will, said Aris. They left the restaurant in silence, emerging into the cold, sunny air of the January afternoon. So you need us to keep on looking out for you? Asked Nine Knives. It's not exactly... Conventional, said Aris, as the boy fumbled for words. Yeah, right. Even Heavy's got friends outside of the suit, right? Said Aris. I don't know, man, said Nine Knives, shrugging in the cold. You're a piece of history. I'm just new meat. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you on retainer, though. Don't expect too many bit cards all of a sudden. Wouldn't say no to eating like that more often, said Tai Tai. Aris nodded. Just let me know if you see any weird stuff around my place. I might just tell the cops to lay off if you're productive and stay on my good side. Nine Knives nodded slowly, considering the words. Later, said Aris, turning back towards the garage and what began to feel like an unconvincing approximation of a parallel life. That night after work, he went home to dinner with the family, as usual. Afterwards, they gathered in front of the TV for the latest episode of Anna. Aris wasn't much interested in the show, but the family liked it, and it was something they all did together. Mommy, asked Naren, sitting between her and Aris. Where's Anna's mommy? That's the thing, sweetie, said Manea. No one really knows. It's a mystery. Is she okay? The little girl asked. Is she dead? Is is Anna a, a, a orphan? No, sweetie, said Manea. Her mother rolled her eyes. Her mom is fine. I think she's just in a hospital. Menea was the one who was the most into it. Her mother was a close second, but often went to a friend's house to watch. She and Menea would debate the numerous strange and unclear aspects of the show in long conversations that flipped back and forth from English to Armenian. Is her mama dead? Naren asked again. No, sweetie, said Menea, squeezing and kissing her daughter. She raised her eyebrows at Aris, who shrugged. She's not dead. Aris knew this was a hot topic of debate in the fan forums Menea took part in. They debated the endless, unraveling, and never-cohering plot lines and twists that occurred in each episode. The show held numerous secrets and kept more than it would probably ever reveal. Some thought Anna had killed her mother and was on the run or in a children's prison or some kind of Victorian juvenile detention facility. Aris remembered something about the occasional letter from Anna's mother while she was recuperating in a sanatorium in some faraway place. He shook his head, getting sucked into the storyline yet again. Then where is she? asked Naren. Aris wondered if she was about to start crying soon. That's the thing, said Menea. We watch and try to find out. Naren said nothing at this, merely snuggling in closer to Aris. Sometimes he thought exposing the girl to the show might scar her in some way or warp her sense of reality. Then again, he remembered the hyperviolent cartoons and melodramas he and his sister watched and wondered if that hauler hadn't already left that particular garage. The familiar opening credits came showing the girl standing in front of the wall, and then the single word Anna appeared, and she went off. After a quick commercial advertising some new car, beer, and detergent, it came back on. 
Lars couldn't quite put a finger on why he even watched it. There was the family time, for sure, but sometimes he bowed out, especially during the shows he didn't care for. He liked war movies and his immersive games. Anna was a major departure for him. He knew folks who obsessed about it. Some of the mechanics even got into heated discussions over the show at work. But he couldn't get interested in it beyond watching with his family every week. Currently, however, he had no real intentions of getting up and doing anything else. Tonight's episode picked up where it left off the previous week. But sometimes they began with a whole new scene, while the interim time was left unexplained or barely even hinted at. On screen, Anna was in a sitting room with puffy couches, high ceilings, numerous oil portraits, and a crystal chandelier hanging above. Anna sat in an upholstered leather chair, her white dress standing out against the dark green leather and the orderly rows of buttons imprinting its surface. Mama, said Daniel, do you think she's gonna... Shh, Menea said, gently kissing his head while keeping an eye on the screen. Let's just watch. Anna was playing with something metallic on the table before her. There were other things on the table, some small pieces of glass, a statue of a dancer in bronze, an ornate but clean ashtray all placed atop a large doily. The camera slowly closed in until Aris and the rest of the world saw the little girl fiddling with the oblong thing in her hands. After a few seconds, she drew a long pin from one side and looked at it. The camera showed her holding it up before her eyes, comparing it to the rest of the thing in her hands. Then she pressed it into notches all along the sides of the box, until finally it fit into another side. The box opened, splitting into two halves to reveal a complex internal mechanism. The Chinese lock, Manea whispered. Huh? said Aris. She found another one last year in a different room on the west side of the mansion, she said, eyes fixed on the screen. I, I wonder if... Manea never finished. From the screen, a noise like children's crying made Anna look up and listen. She left the lock open on the table and slid off the couch and entered a long hall. So that's where it is, said Manea, nodding, deep in thought, squinting at the screen. What? said Aris, wondering if he'd once again fallen asleep during the show. The drawing room, said Manea, pointing. See that hall? All the way at the end is the library and a parlor and then one of the smaller dining halls. Oh, said Aris, nodding. He didn't follow details like the layout of the mansion Anna lived in the way that Manea did. Manea and her online coven posted homemade maps of the buildings as well as endless suppositions about the layout of it, much like he and Wendell puzzled over wiring diagrams on Dogen 3550 transport's frame. Or like the proper care of a fat suit's gasket brakes, or keeping the wear down on a flushed zipper line. He hadn't thought of that for years. But today, after the afternoon's meeting with the two heavy boys at the paddock, he couldn't help but reminisce about the rituals and practices he went through to keep his suit up and gear running smoothly in that former life. Now here he was, a suburban dad sitting on the couch watching TV. Could be worse, he thought. You could have died there on Nealon Street like the rest of the crew, or been pinched and carted out to a penal island or a barge to float your time away in chemical sleep. Aris, said Manan. He startled and looked at her. But what? Did you hear what I said? She asked. Uh, no, sorry. Thinking about 
of the shop. Mm-hmm, she said. What? Menea shook her head and pointed back at the screen with her chin. Now the little girl left the hall and turned a corner to enter another. To her right were a series of doors. To her left were banks of windows looking out at an enclosed courtyard. Something he noticed was they never showed you what was outside the mansion. Windows faced out, but the girls seemed to stay away from them or be distracted. In the rare shots where windows were visible, they were either misted up or rain pounded down outside. Nothing could be seen over the high rooftops, but a sky which was often gray and cloudy. Manet and her mother endlessly speculated about whether this meant it was set in England or someplace in Northern Europe. Aura's phone buzzed. He tapped his jaw, and a text message floated up in front of his eyes. Thanks for lunch today. Real good eats. All Papa wants meeting tomorrow night. Pearl Street Station, 6 p.m. Nine knives. Aris blinked the message away, trying to understand the turmoil of cold knots and tingling suddenly erupting in his guts. While they watched the rest of the show, he feigned a half-interest as little Anna never found the source of the cries, but she did discover a new wing of the house, one Menea had never seen before. It's like it was hiding there under her nose the whole time, she said. She passed the blue doors in season two, but never touched the handle. Was that when she was dreaming? said Daniel. Yeah, said Menea, hugging her son. Good memory. She had a fever that didn't break. She kept having dreams and was walking around delirious all over the place. Naren yawned. Okay, said Aris. Off to bed. Time for some dreams of your own. I hope I don't get delirious fevers, said Naren. Me too, said Benea. That night, Aris dreamt of walking the halls of the tower block apartment building he grew up in. All the doors were open on every apartment. As he walked by, faces of dead and forgotten friends waved him in, but he kept walking towards a place he couldn't get to fast enough. The next night, he once again stayed at the garage until everyone else had left. In all their years together, Menea had grown used to him staying into the night to take care of things, especially after the old man died. There were always loose ends to tie up, and Aris often crashed on a cot in the back office storeroom. Today, Menea did little more than shrug when he said he was taking care of some outstanding invoices and reorganizing the stock system. I'll leave you a plate, she said, kissing the top of his head before leaving. At ten of six, he closed up and walked to the tea station, finding nine knives and Tai Tai at their usual spot. Ain't you on the wrong side, he asked. Nine Knives barely shook his head. All bases outbound, he muttered. Get the next train one car down. Five stops up. Islington Mystic River. Wait on the platform there. When the train came and they boarded, Aris did as Nine Knives said and entered one car behind theirs. Keeping with heavy boy form, they adjusted their suits slightly so the cars dropped into their chassis and ground the rails with a pained squeal of steel on steel. The other passengers, already giving the boys a wide berth, shuffled uncomfortably as they watched Nine Knives smile broadly in satisfaction at his effect on their travel. Aris shook his head and clung to the pole as they finally let up and let the train continue onwards. They were lucky they could display in public without drawing an entire riot squad of cops with concrete busters and EMP nets. Arlington Mystic River was close to the culvert of dank, trickling water that was once a minor river emptying out into Boston Harbor. 
The station looked like all others. Aluminum railings, sign painted white upon a green background. Five people exited, including Aris and the heavy boys. The train car groaned and swayed as the boys disembarked. Aris stood in the cold as the duo slowly passed him. Keep ten feet behind, muttered Nine Knives. Aris smirked, but did as he was told. They left the platform and walked up a long flight of stairs emerging onto Medford Avenue. A short walk down the street led to a nondescript dark office building amidst the three-block stretch of buildings facing old triple-decker houses. Then they cut through a parking lot to the next building over an ancient U Pullet storage facility. Around the back, Aris found the two waiting for him outside an unmarked metal door. As they descended a flight of dimly lit stairs, they came to another door. From inside, Aris could hear muffled, thudding music. Nine Knives pushed the door open, and Tai Tai and Aris followed him in. Down a short, narrow corridor, barely wide enough to accommodate the heavy boys in their suits, they passed through another door. Here the music was so loud, Aris thought it might shake the rusted metal door from its hinges. Stepping inside, he saw the room beyond was bland concrete with a similar smell to most basements Aris had ever been in. A combined odor of water, damp, garbage, liquor, cigarette, and leafy smoke. The room was large, lit from overhead by circular lights. Twenty to thirty heavy boys lounged around a square of couches and chairs surrounding a small dais. On low metal tables before them sat numerous beer bottles and minor league drug paraphernalia. The room carried overtones of other odors, leather, machined carbon weaves, and body odor. He was surprised that it was the music that got him the most. It had been years since he heard the old songs, but not much had changed in terms of heavy boy music. Thudding beats drove his ears into hiding while his heart throbbed with the bass notes. A skittering, fractal melody bounced atop it all like a tiny boat tossed on stormy waves, while a deep voice proclaimed their prowess in no uncertain terms. They quieted down when they saw Ara standing with nine knives and Tai Tai on either side of him. Someone lowered the music's volume until he hardly had to shout to be heard. At the far end of the dais, on an overstuffed chair like a dilapidated throne, sat a very large heavy boy. This was the all-papa, leader of this gang of heavy boys. What you got there? A heavy boy near the front asked. Dinner? A live target. The others laughed. Nuh-uh, Chromali, said Nine Knives. Yo, this is the guy I was telling you about, all-papa. Nine Knives pushed Aris forward. From his seat, the leader didn't speak or move so much as rumble. The music cut out completely now. As Aris approached the ring, two heavies parted for him without relieving the menace in their faces. Aris stood before the all-papa, whose voice seemed to come not so much from his larynx as from the concrete floor beneath them. Nine Knives says you claiming to be future pop out of the old Boston Harbor all base. May it rest in pieces. Aris nodded. The all-papa regarded him carefully through his immobile form, making it hard for Aris to tell if perhaps he was just slow-moving. And you recruit in my boy's eyes, is that right? He said. Aris nodded, letting a smirk slip across his face briefly. Renting out heavies, the all-papa rumbled. Think that's funny? They look like bitches to you? Aris turned around, looked at Nine Knives and Tai Tai, then back at the all-papa's bulky black mass, and shook his head. 
No, he said. They look like they need to be doing something other than cadging free volts and cracking the platform, though. A rustle of anger went through the group, a dusting of growls and barely whispered curses. Aris' concealed pistol and stun baton would hold them off long enough to escape if things really got out of hand. Saying they ain't down and heavy? asked the all-papa. No, sir. Just saying they look underutilized. Easy for you to say, said a voice directly behind him. Bitch-ass punk bent over and gave up them codes to one might see like a puta. Aris dropped to his left like he'd been hit. As he turned and withdrew the shock baton, he brought it down across the heavy boy's hand. The kid screamed, drawing the broken hand against his chest, too slow in the cumbersome suit to retaliate. The others rose and surged forward, ready to turn Aris into a paste. Then the voice rose from the dais. Enough! The single word rolled out from the all-papa's throne like thunder. They barely held fast, ready to tear Aris apart. He held the baton up in one hand and clutched the pistol inside his coat pocket. That was you, huh? The all-papa asked. You the one gave up Boston for NYC? Nah-uh, said Aris. Wasn't how it went down, all-papa. Got duped by my girl. Badly. Baby G. Out of the Fanuel Fallen Angels. She was running me along with someone in NYC. Kimo Cho. Bronx Heavy's all-papa. Whistles and sour hisses went through the crowd. Ouch, someone shouted. Aris nodded. Yeah, I got fucked all right. Saw my crew go down fast when NYC dropped them. Then I saw the police come and take the rest of them away. Ain't seen none of them since. What did you do? Someone asked. I... Aris looked back at them, and all he could see were the wounded faces of his crew watching the waves of black-coated NYC heavies come down on them like all the gods of death anyone had ever prayed to. I... I got the fuck out is what I did. Thought I could save him if I ran back to the all-base. Wearing them bitch-ass shiny new no-tones, said the all-papa. Aris frowned. Them white ones with the red trim and the big black swirl on the side, the all-papa said, nodding. Them fly 685s. Always love catching an NYC dupe, cutting those off his feet, trying to make him eat him. <laughs> Yeah, my girl duped me, said Aris, nodding. Let someone steal my gear and left those in place of my A-dads. Almost would have cut off my own feet instead of putting them on. But then you can't be down and heavy without kicks, am I right? He was amazed at how quickly he slipped into the old patter and cadence of Heavy Speak's mixture of Asian, Pacific Island, and Hispanic words and phrases. Like the lingo never quite left his tongue. The all-papa nodded. I remember seeing him on you and thinking either you stupid showing up to a throwdown in those or yeah, someone double-crossed you. Ars peered into the darkness surrounding the all-papa. Familiar threads in his voice writhing in Ars' head during their conversation finally wove together into a solid memory. Tiny town? He whispered. The black-clad bulk of flesh leaned forward and slid his glasses up. Bright blue eyes looked back at Aris. Knew he was fucked after that, he said, resting elbows on thick thighs, the sound of the leather chair's hydraulics creaking. He looked at his crew surrounding him, their hands eager to get hold of Aris. 
Man, if any of you had seen this guy back in the day, you'd have given your left one to let him school you on being truly down and heavy. The crew backed down slightly, indecision running through them. You got dropped just now because you were stupid, Fortune 8, the all-papa tiny town, said to the kid whose hand Aris broke. You stand up to fight in full Jovian mode. You're bound to get fucked by someone moving faster than you. Shit, my grandmama could have got you like that. The crew laughed, which loosened the tension a notch. Thought you were dead, Aris said, nodding up at him. Might as well be in after that. Tiny Town dropped the glasses back over his eyes and shook his head slowly. Three months in Mass General while they rebuilt my spine. Another three at Spalding doing rehab. Cops up my ass the whole time asking about the battle. Good thing I got the suit, because I can't walk for shit without it. I'm glad you're okay, said Aris. Tiny Town nodded. Boys, this here's Future Pop, said the All Papa. The real deal. Anyone in this sorry-ass crew better recognize and throw respect his way. The mob stepped back, shuffling as each shifted their feet wider apart and linked arms in a wide semicircle around him. Aris felt the air crackling as they simultaneously activated their suits. The dusty concrete floor shook with the sudden increase in weight. Aris struggled to contain his emotion. There was nothing like the sound and feel of a heavy boy crew pulling together and setting up a wall. Nothing like it when they linked up stronger than eight feet of concrete. Nothing like sinking up to that in your own suit. The emotion and electricity made Aris' skin tingle right where he stood. You make a mean all-papa, Tiny Town, Aris said, stepping forward to clasp hands with his old friend. Tiny Town gestured at his crew. They lightened their suits and sat back down. The music rose in volume to something that tickled the soles of Aris' boots. The boy whom Aris injured handed him a bottle. Sorry about the hand, Aris said. What's your prop name? Fortune 8. Sorry I called you a... No worries. Tiny Town waved Aris up to stand next to him. How long you been all, Papa? Aris asked, taking a swig and wincing at the liquid as it hit his throat. After Metal 3D got busted for stealing cars from a container ship in Chelsea, said Tiny Town. Metal 3D? Don't know him, said Aris. You wouldn't. He's my cousin. Somerville and the Burbs kept it heavy but low-key. Pretty much fell under the radar, especially after what went down then. Yeah, said Aris, feeling the effects of the lighter fluid he appeared to be drinking. Think we can talk somewhere in private? Sure, said Tiny Town. He rose with difficulty and walked to a door at the end of the dice with the wheeze of pneumatically assisted joints. Aris handed the bottle back to Fortune 8 and followed. Beyond the door was the former maintenance office for the building. A hospital bed took up one side while a kitchenette and table occupied the other. Tiny Town's gear rack and deck took up another wall where another door stood. Aris took a seat at the table while Tiny Town made his way to the bed. Even without the suit, Aris saw Tiny Town was plain old fat. Tiny Town was a big kid back in the day, and the years only made him bigger. The suit gave him some degree of control over a badly damaged body, however. Once situated on the bed, he deflated the suit and slipped off his shades. The bed's electronics acknowledged him and began to administer aid like a servant. Some beer in the fridge. Help yourself and get me one too, he said. Aris stood, and once he'd given his friend a beer, they clinked the dark bottles together. To surviving, said Tiny Town. To the old days, said Aris. Tiny Town nodded and slugged back the beer. You've been down here the whole time? Pretty much. 
go up top once in a while, but Somerville PD thinks I may have something to do with an alleged robbery and homicide. For real? asked Aris. Does it matter? Tiny Town shrugged. I'm down and heavy, so they already got it hard for me. He drank from the beer again, then pointed the bottle at Aris, before laughing. The fuck you been doing, boy? Run a hauler garage. Same one I worked at back in the day when I wasn't representing. Got a wife and two kids. Doing all right. Nice. Tiny Town nodded. So you happy? I shrugged, peering into the bottleneck before drinking. From nowhere, he swore under his breath, then banged his bottle on the table. Damn it, Tiny Town. What the hell happened back then? He said. Look, I'm sorry. Maybe it's just that it's been all these goddamn years without knowing shit, but where the fuck is everybody now? Tiny Town's face shifted, his brow furrowing as his eyes narrowed. Aris thought he may have misunderstood and been asking about the crew outside. But from the length of time he took to stare into the bottle, Aris knew his old comrade was going back in time to 15 years before. Pretty much everyone got beat, and I mean beat hard, Tiny Town said, his rumbling voice going quiet, almost childlike. You saw it, man. We couldn't do nothing. Couldn't lock up. Couldn't sink with them codes gone. Fucking NYC, man. Fucking went through us like we was made of straw. Most held their ground, but without the codes? Hell, you know. Individual suits can only hold so much. Know what I'm saying? Man, I'm sorry. I... Nah, I ain't laying down anything on you, but... uh, Wait, you still go by that? Nope. Not for a while. Being on the surface meant I gotta go civilian. Name's Aris now, he said. Then reconsidered and laughed. Fuck it. It don't matter. Hell, it sounds good to hear it again. I'd have run if I was you too. Can't blame anyone who did. Motherfuckers were out there to kill us. Tiny Town shook his head. Thought it was just a territory brawl, but no, they were out for more. Shit started, they've been going downhill ever since. Aras stared into his beer bottle again before looking up suddenly. Wait, what? Tiny Town's eyebrows raised. Look, it's like NYC wanted us out of something. Don't know why. I mean, it was a turf grab, but a whole city? Shit. Wasn't just the normal violence. That was a fucking battleground. Once they took us out, they came in and held it ever since. No fucking other gangs can stand, but you got all these flash rides with all them NYC plates and goons and cut colors. I mean, fuck it. You been back to the old corner since? Ara stared at Tiny Town now, with his eyebrows aloft. No? Yeah, can't blame you. Hell, they got the whole city locked up down there. Why they gotta fuck with us, man? Ara shrugged. No one had shit after that. Cops took it as an excuse to keep a thumb on us. All the gangs, but especially us heavies. You turn up in daylight looking heavy? They threw more EMP bolts at us than I got wrinkles on my balls. Tiny Town reached among the dark folds of his coat to grab a handful of crotch. Aris laughed. Nah, I'm serious, boy. Maybe five or ten of us made it out of there. Headed to the safe house off of Columbus. Fucking Boston PD were waiting with a goddamn army. Tiny Town picked at the label on the bottle. We scattered. We gone. End of story. Mostly. Shit, said Aris. So man, if you hadn't taken off, you'd have gotten pinched. You say they're still there? Them NYC boys? Hell yeah, said Tiny Town, before finishing his beer. He pitched the bottle at a faker bin where it landed with a crash. The machine began to break it down for future use. I mean, it's a small but heavy, heavy NYC presence. Know what I mean? And you're saying the cops were in on it? 
Well, I don't know about that exactly, but you'll give me another beer? I mean, they were working pretty fucking hard to get our shit out of there. Barely touched the NYC crews. Fuck, man. Go back and watch the news from then. You'll see. Aris nodded. Where they heaviest, he asked. Where it is right around, uh, Neyland Street and Surface Road. Not far from where we used to stand. Aris knew it well. The old Chinatown was where his crew held out. Something about the location tickled his brain, but he thought it might just be the alcohol. You go down there and there's a few of them, but they acting like they fucking laid eggs there or something. Aris laughed. I'm serious, man, said Tiny Town, chuckling himself. Yo, it's good to see you. What you been up to? Aris filled Tiny Town in on his life of the past few years. Manea, the kids, growing the business. Tiny Town nodded and seemed impressed. Aris found it hard to be overly excited, which he attributed to alcohol and fatigue. But repeating his current life to a friend who still wore the colors of the old one made it seem like he'd taken a step down. Shit, man, said Tiny Town. You got it made. Aris shrugged. You don't sound too excited, though. Tiny Town swigged some beer then and said, Your woman keeping it freaky for you? That's the mother of my kids, man, Aris said. Tiny Town held his hands up. Look, I, I don't know, you know, Aris said. It's cool and all to have a family and not be harassed, but seeing you here and remembering how we used to throw down? I, I don't know, it's... Yo, don't get all sepia-weepy about this, said Tiny Town. Ain't like it was back 15 years ago, or even 20 when we was kid. Shit's different. Half the time, I wonder if it's even worth it to be holding down anymore, you know? Wonder if it'd be better to take my broken, broken-ass body down to that brain farm in Hull and let him wire me up for some cash. Oh, man, said Aris, shaking his head. You believe what they say in those fucking ads, bro? Mine Farm was a company in Hull on the South Shore that did something with people's heads all hooked up together to make a supercomputer. Aris wasn't too sure how, but from what he read and heard, corporations rented out time on Mine Farm's network to use the heightened computing power of 300 or more linked brains. Their commercials showed people sitting in comfortable couches, lying back and smiling. What Aris didn't like was they didn't even show the spinal taps they used and the permanent scar and socket left on people's necks. The money was good, but he wondered why they couldn't find work that didn't leave such a deep mark on them. I know it sounds crazy, but... Uh... Tiny Town drew on his beer. Well, what are you doing now? asked Aris. What's keeping this all base going? One of the guys, Shock Talk, his old man owns the building, doesn't care what we do as long as we're quiet during the day. A couple of guys are doing some protection work. Few are dealing Rhino down in the combat free zone. Oh man, seriously? We never used to truck with that shit. Aris grimaced, not knowing what was worse, the drug dealing or where they were doing it. Rhino was a powerful triopiate, massively addictive, with a nasty side effect on people's skin. Selling it down in the combat free zone, a designated area where narcotic use, possession and trafficking were tolerated and regulated, was just about as dangerous as sporting ADADs in the Bronx. Tiny Town snorted. We ain't got much choice now. Can't sport the lifestyle in public, and we gotta support it all. Know what I'm saying? Tiny Town took a long swig of beer, then belched. Ain't much cash in hacking parking kiosks or boosting cars. Down in the sleazy CZ, you at least got a chance to make some decent dough in cards. Yeah, but we never, I mean, Rhino, man. You seen folks hooked on that, right? 
Aris hunched over, then sneered, drawing his arms around himself like a weird skeletal embrace. Tiny Town's shrug was so short and quick, it was more like a flinch. Hell, I know, but what am I gonna do? Go open a fucking garage like you? Tiny Town brightened a bit. Hey, how about you leave one of them hollows open every once in a while, man? We can split the profit on whatever we sell and then dump the rest. Aris laughed. Hey, man, uh, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't give you shit about being safe and alive. Hell, we all held down jobs back in the day to keep ourselves looking good. Tiny Town laughed. But some of us also ran darker games to keep it all going, right? Yeah, I know, said Aris. His own hands were far from clean during his days of being down and heavy. But Rhino... Rhino is so nasty, man. Hell, I know that. At least no one's dealing ouch. That fucking shit killed my cousin. Tiny Town jerked his head back towards the room behind them. And I'd instantly fuck up any one of my boys if they did that shit. Both fell silent, awash in beer buzz and revived memories. Aris finished his beer after looking at his watch. Man, I should go. I gotta work tomorrow, he said, and standing. Ha, look at you, Mr. Barney, said Tiny Town, laughing. Gotta run like a slave and do what the clock says. Ha, used to do it back when I was paying for my first pair of mokes. Doing it now, too. Ha, word. I used to sell shoes to kids at the mall. No shit, said Aris. Tiny Town chuckled. No shit. Name tag, the ref shirt, and everything. Decent money, and it made a good front. Aris walked to the bed and held out his hand. Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. Don't be no stranger. You're one lighty that's allowed at this all base for sure. Thanks, said Aris, turning for the door. He stopped, then turned back to look at his friend in the hospital bed. Think I can keep nine knives and tie-tie on retainer-like? Sure, said Tiny Town. Why? You got something going on? Maybe. Kinda. Mm, not totally sure. Yeah, you you got them. They heavy, but they ain't big earners, you know? Yeah, man. Later? Later, said Tiny Town. Aris walked back into the main room where the crew lounged. Some tweaked their suits on a beat-up deck, while some were testing out their staying power by running at each other with suits at their heaviest. Aris stopped before a drunken Nine Knives sprawled on a couch. Thanks, man, he said. Nine Knives smiled up at Aris. You the man, Mr. A, he said. I mean, uh, you, you future pop. Nah, boy, said Aris, heading for the door and shouting over his shoulder. I was future pop. Ain't no more. He made it back to the station just in time to catch the last train home. Aris crept into his house to find a covered plate of food waiting. He warmed it up and ate it standing over the sink, looking out at the snow falling in the backyard. He thought of being among heavy boys again. Then his thoughts turned to the new rulers of his old turf and what they'd look like standing there. Then he recalled why Neyland Street and Surface Road struck something up in his memory. It was the only point in Boston where an access shaft ran a thousand feet below the city surface to a wormway maintenance tunnel. He knew without looking that this would be the point where the Yukikor Hall had malfunctioned. Twice. He took a few pills to sleep, knowing that without them, he'd be up half the night, thinking before caving in and going back to the garage.
that does it for episode five, chapter five. I uh, hope you dug that. A little more about the heavy boys, a little more about the, the world there again. A little intrigue development. So far, so good. So far, so cool, huh? I'm digging it myself. I hope you're enjoying it too. Drop me a line, an email uh, at the website, um, and uh, you know, let me know what you think. I'll keep doing this. We're up to episode six next week, and uh, things are going to get more interesting. So keep listening. I am Chang Terhun, and you are the listener, and I am grateful for you. Uh, so, uh, next week, new episode, episode six, like I said, of Travel Malfunctions. Be well. Namaste. Namaste.